I invite you to open your Bible with me uh, this evening as we consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, looking specifically at one of Isaiah's servant songs, the last of Isaiah's servant songs, and we'll start in Isaiah chapter 52. Now, you may have already picked up on the fact that we looked at this passage not that long ago. If you remember the, the Sunday before Christmas, December 18th, and then again on December 25th, Pastor Brent walked us through this passage. But as we talked about it, we felt that this was an appropriate passage for us to revisit as we focus on the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And while we know the rest of the story, and while we know we're going to celebrate in two days, Easter Sunday, we do want to focus on this text and on what Isaiah has to tell us prophetically of what will happen. We are going to look at the song of the suffering servant. And as we look at this uh, song today, there, I don't have an outline per se. I don't have three points. I just want us to walk through the text. And I want us to see this song and the way that the prophet Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays this out. And he does this in five different stanzas. This song is composed of, of five stanzas, and each stanza comprises three verses in the text of Scripture. And what I want us to see is the first stanza is going to present the suffering servant from God's perspective. The second stanza will prevent, present the suffering servant from a human perspective. Then the middle stanza is going to show us the reality of the suffering servant. The fourth stanza will then back out and give us again man's perspective on this suffering servant. And finally, Stanza number five, we're going to see once again the servant from the perspective of God. So we are going to walk through uh, this passage. I encourage you to have your Bible open. If you don't, I will have the text of Scripture on the screen behind me so you will be able to follow, through, follow along as we walk through uh, this passage of Scripture for the next few minutes and consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's jump right in to the first stanza, which gives us God's perspective on the suffering servant. God says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. As we look at this first stanza of the song, this begins with God's affirmation that his servant, the Messiah, will act wisely. Now, in acting wisely, one of the commentators said that this means that the servant uses the best means to obtain the highest ends. In other words, he 
uses God's means to fulfill the very purpose for which he was chosen and called. And because of this wisdom in fulfilling the Father's will, we are told that he will be exalted. He will be high and lifted up and highly exalted. These are terms that Isaiah uses throughout his book that are used in reference only to God himself. So this suffering servant will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. Jesus himself speaks of this in John chapter 10 when he says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And as we look in this first stanza, we see, even in verse 14, that the will of Yahweh in the suffering servant, in the suffering of his servant, leads mankind to be astonished at him. Astonished at what happens. And verse 14 gives us the reason for this astonishment. Because it says his appearance was so marred beyond any human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. All this week I have been reading each day through uh, the days as the gospel writers present them, both in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just today, reading of the ordeal that Jesus suffered, the way that he was beaten, that he was mocked, that he had his beard plucked out, that he was spit upon and beaten in the face, flogged and beaten and nailed to the cross. So much so that as Isaiah prophetically said, his figure was so marred, was so deformed that people would look at him and wonder if that was even a human being. This was the punishment that was inflicted on Christ. But it was not his punishment. It was our punishment. And Isaiah describes the suffering of this servant in terms that are, that are difficult for us to grasp. Terms that would cause our stomach to churn and cause us to divert our eyes. This was the kind of astonishment that mankind has at the sacrifice of Christ. But yet Jesus, as he presents the serv- Jesus the servant from God's perspective, that is not the only thing that is astonishing because verse 15 tells us that so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. So just as many men were astonished at the servant's suffering, so many more will be astonished at the result of the servant's suffering, which is the sprinkling of the nations. And this idea of sprinkling refers in the Old Testament to the priestly function when the priests would take the blood and they would sprinkle it. They would sprinkle it sometimes on people. They would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And it was a sign, a symbol of purification. And so this Messiah, this chosen one, this servant of the Lord, would sprinkle not just Israel, but all of the nations. 
And this would have a widespread effect. And this in itself is astonishing that the sprinkling, the purification of the nations would come through the suffering of the servant, the servant of God. Now, as we move along into the second stanza, at the beginning of chapter 53, this gives us now man's perspective on this servant. And we will notice that the human perspective of this servant is going to be radically different from God's perspective. God, who says that this servant acts wisely and therefore will be high and lifted up, but as is often the case, man is going to have a different perspective. And so we read this in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As we read this second stanza, we see that the reaction of man is one of disbelief, misunderstanding, and rejection of the servant of God. The first verse here highlights this. And through the use of two rhetorical questions, who has believed what he has heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer to these rhetorical questions is given in the next two verses, but, but we are to assume that, that no one has believed this. It is unbelievable to the human imagination. John Oswald gives an idea as to why this is so unbelievable. He says this, all the language about God's power to redeem and to defeat the enemies of his people tends to condition the reader to expect something in the way of overwhelming power and might. When instead we hear about suffering, humiliation, and loss, it comes as a surprise. And this was exactly the surprise that the people of Israel faced. They expected a Messiah who would come with overwhelming power and might. But Isaiah tells us, long before the Messiah appeared, Isaiah tells us that this was going to be different. And therefore, because Jesus did not fit the Jewish expectations of the Messiah, because he didn't fit into their mold, he was despised and rejected. Isaiah tells us in verse 2 that there was, there was nothing that would draw us humanly to this Messiah. He was like a young plant growing up out of the dry ground. That even if you noticed, you would look and, and think of it as unimportant and insignificant. There was no form, no majesty, no beauty. Nothing that would draw us to the Messiah physically. Nothing that would make us look at him and say, yes, he's the one. Instead, he seemed like a very undesirable candidate to rally around 
or to stand behind. And because of that, Isaiah says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He was, the word despised carries the idea of being regarded with contempt. Looking at something and seeing it as worthless. This very same term was used at two significant points in the Old Testament. One was used to describe what Esau did as he looked at his birthright compared to a bowl of stew, and it says he despised his birthright. He looked at that and said, that's worthless. The other time, another time, not just the only time, but one other time that this is used is to describe Goliath's attitude when David came out to meet him. It says Goliath despised David, and he said, what am I, a dog? That you're going to come out at me with sticks and stones? It's a word of utter contempt that when humans would see God's Messiah, God's chosen one, they would look at him, they would evaluate him, and they would consider him completely worthless. And because they considered him worthless, the text tells us that he was as one from whom we hide our face, from whom we turn away. It's not even worth our time to look at and regard. We're just going to turn away to something else. So he was despised and he was rejected. He was cast aside. The very people that he came to save rejected him. Because he was not what they thought. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And rather than being surrounded when he came by the pomp and the circumstance, by the applaud and the accolades, he was a man of sorrows. He knew sorrow. He knew grief. He knew pain. And therefore, though God had one perspective, man's perspective on this Messiah, on this servant, was to consider him as worthless, to despise him and to turn away. But now in the third stanza, Isaiah is going to present to us the reality. What is really going on here? And we get a clue to that by the first word of verse 4 when we read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this stanza, we see that despite man's estimation of the servant of the Lord, Isaiah tells us the reality. And he keys us in with this word, surely. Or we could translate that as truly. He has borne our grief, carried our sorrow. The pain, the very pain and suffering, the sorrow that caused man to turn their face away and to esteem Christ as nothing was not his own pain, was not his own sorrow. 
It belonged to us. It was ours. We should have borne it. We should have carried it. But yet mankind, in their arrogance, looked at Jesus and attributed attributed the punishment that was laid on him as God's chastisement for his sin, for his wrongdoing. And yet Isaiah tells us in verse 5 that the reality is that Jesus was pierced because of us. This word pierce is often used to speak of either a sword or an arrow that inflicts blows that lead to death. Jesus endured the blows that were destined for us. The arrows that were aimed at our heart and he stepped in and took those blows. The piercings of the sword that were destined for our death fell on him. He was pierced, Isaiah says, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Throughout the Old Testament, this word is used on many different occasions. Two of the ones that stood out to me were the ideas of being ground into the dirt or being squashed like a bug. That is what Jesus endured on our behalf. And because of that, we have, Isaiah tells us, peace. And we are healed. But note note the oxymorons that are used here. He says, the chastisement, the punishment, that brings peace. Wounds that heal. Those don't usually go together. And this is why in the plan of God, though God would see it and perceive it one way, mankind would reject that because it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to go together. And why? Why was Jesus pierced and crushed? Verse 6 tells us, because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us, we have turned every one to his own way. Why was Christ crushed? Because every one of us is a rebel at heart. Because every one of us would rather follow our own designs, our own imaginations, than follow our shepherd. But rather than striking and afflicting and piercing and crushing us for our rebellion, Jesus allowed himself to be struck, to be afflicted, to be pierced, and to be crushed. And this was all part of the Father's wise plan. But yet, once again, mankind didn't grasp it, didn't accept it. And so in the fourth stanza, Isaiah again revisits man's perspective on this Messiah. He says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? of the land of the living, 
stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah carries over this this illustration of the sheep. And now, instead of applying it to us as the rebellious errant sheep, he's going to apply this to Jesus. And he, but he applies the gentleness, the gentle nature of Jesus in the face of the oppression and the persecution that he endured. He says, like a sheep, he was silent and he opened not his mouth. When Jesus was facing the punishment that God meted out to him, he was not like a lion who roared or a wolf who bared his teeth when he was facing a threat to his life. No. Instead, he silently submitted to the will of the Father, allowing himself to be slaughtered unjustly. Jesus Throughout the Old Testament, we read and we see types or images in various Old Testament figures. And Jesus is the better example of all of those. We see Jesus as the better Adam. But we can also see him in the illustration of Isaac. He is the better Isaac. The one, you remember Isaac, who went with his father to sacrifice to God? And Isaac laid himself on the altar when he was bound by his father, laid on the altar. And his father Abraham was there with the knife raised, ready to slay his own son. But God intervened. And God provided a sacrifice. But Jesus is the better Isaac because he laid himself on the altar. And when his father raised the knife, this time it fell. This time there was no other sacrifice because Jesus was the sacrifice for sin. He was the the, the lamb that God provided for us, for our sin. Verse 8 talks, again, from a human perspective, that his death was by oppression and judgment. The cruel, this speaks of the cruel and unjust treatment that Jesus faced. Yet despite the injustice, the verse tells us that there was, there was no complaint, no protest against this. Isaiah asks, who considered that he was cut, cut off out of the land of the living? That idea of considered is who looked at that and and complained about it or protested against it. And in our society today, we hear often of great protests against injustices. But when Jesus bore the wrath of God, there was no one there to protest. There was no public outcry. There was no uproar over the injustice of God's perfect son having his life snatched away even though it was due to no fault of his own. But on the contrary, verse 9 tells us that he was treated as if he were one of the oppressors. 
They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Oftentimes, as we read throughout Scripture, the wicked and the rich are kind of lumped together as the stereotype of a violent oppressor in ancient times. They were the ones who would lie, who would cheat, who would steal, who would kill in order to gain more wealth and more riches. And they would do it with no qualms or no hesitation. You think of Ahab and Jezebel. When Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, and Naboth said, no, I will not sell you this land. This is, a, this is an inheritance from my family. And Jezebel and Ahab schemed to lie and to bring in false witnesses and to have Naboth stoned and to seize his vineyard for themselves. This is how mankind treated Jesus, as if he were one of the oppressors, one of the wicked. And so he made his, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich, even though, the text tells us, he had done no violence, there was no wrongdoing, no deceit was found in his mouth. And this was mankind's response to God's servant. But in this song, as in life, God has the final word. And so in stanza number five, the last stanza, we see one more time God's perspective on his suffering servant. Verse 10 through 12 reads like this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I love the way this song ends because this is not merely a story of human oppression. According to Scripture, Christ's death was according to the will of God. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter will say the same thing in Acts 2 and verse 23. He says that even though wicked men laid hands on Jesus and crucified him, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But this first phrase of verse 10 should startle us should give us pause. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Literally, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Can you imagine? God was pleased to crush his own son. 
There's no way we can wrap our minds around this. My human mind cannot fathom being pleased to crush my son. But yet Paul will say to the Corinthians that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And Job tells us in Job chapter 12 and verse 13 that with God are wisdom and might and he has counsel and understanding. And as God always does, as he crushed his own son for us, he made life out of death. And he made the ultimate expression of love and justice out of the ultimate human expression of hatred and oppression. And this is why Paul will say, if, if you'll flip over with me to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Paul, as he recounts the working of God, breaks out in praise and he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has, been given, has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The unjust suffering of God's perfect servant can only be understood in the light of his infinite knowledge and wisdom. And verse 11 tells us that Jesus himself, after having poured out his soul, Isaiah says, he will see and be satisfied. Because as God's righteous servant, he bore the iniquity of all of us. And then Isaiah tells us in verse 12 that because of the servant's submission to the will of God, by becoming the sacrifice that justifies sinners, God will vindicate Jesus and exalt him. But what for Isaiah was future? Look through this fifth stanza and note all the times we see the word he shall or he will. For Isaiah, that was still a future concept. But for us, that vindication, that exaltation is no longer future. That is past. And this is why Paul says when he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, that, that magnificent passage that all of us know describing the humiliation of Christ. But yet Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him. And has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So there's our foretaste of Sunday. As we consider on Friday the sacrifice of Christ, we see 
Not only from a human perspective, but as we examine this servant song of Isaiah, we get to see God's perspective on this. We get to see that God's perfect servant who did no wrong was crushed for us. Was crushed for our sin. All of the sins that we might so often overlook, that we might treat lightly or think, well, it's not really that bad. Christ was crushed for my sin. Christ was crushed for your sin. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. We are going as a body to partake of the bread and of the fruit of the vine as a symbol of this sacrifice. So I'd like us at this time just to bow our heads and to close our eyes as we prepare for the table. And I'd like to invite the deacons to come as they prepare the Lord's table. I want us to think, to reflect on what Isaiah tells us about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in this servant song. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed.